1: This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak to all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Listeners, you can now support the continued growth of the show. Go to glow.fm e2. That's glow.fm slash e2. If you enjoy the content we're producing here and our show is part of your podcast routine, Check it out, we always appreciate it. Today we're speaking with the CEO of COOs, so to speak, he is Cameron Harold. Cameron is a lifelong entrepreneur and the head of the COO Alliance, the largest global network for the second in command. He's also responsible for helping engineer 1-800-GOT-JUNK's spectacular growth alongside Brian Scudamore, and is the author of six books, some of which we dig into today. In this great conversation with Cameron, we talk all about his recent nomad lifestyle and why he decided to sell basically everything he owned. We also chat about the concept of a vivid vision and how to put that into practice. The importance of carving out time to think and time to delegate. Musk's recent acquisition of Twitter, lots of commentary around that. The traits of an entrepreneur and the eerily similar connection to bipolar disorder and much, much more. So with that intro said and done, let's get to it. Here is Cameron Harold. You know what, before we jump into the Q&A today, I gotta ask you about your nomad lifestyle because as it stands now, you and your wife have been to 33 countries over almost five years. When did you decide to live this life? How did you come to this decision and why now? So a couple parts of it. One, my youngest
0: son was getting ready to graduate high school and go off to university. And he was deciding to go 3,000 miles away. So I was like, well, I'm never going to see you this year. Like, And my youngest son was already away at college. She had no kids. She was getting frustrated with the corporate world and kind of had said, fuck it to, you know, um, working with Salesforce and Ticketmaster and big kind of exec roles, running engineering teams. I could run my business from anywhere and have always loved travel. And when we started dating about five years ago, we started exploring different countries and she really fell in love with it. Um, I'd always traveled and she had only been to about three or four. She's now been to about 35 or 40. So we just started kind of doing it and then pre-COVID, she was actually going to start kind of exploring pretty deeply. And I was going to go and kind of catch up every six weeks. I was going to stay with my kids for a bit and go and spend a month with her and come back and go for a month. And, and then COVID hit and we kind of went into lockdown and we kind of kept looking at each other going, this sucks. Like, I don't love my place in Arizona. I'd been in Arizona for 10 years. I've been in Vancouver for 25 years. I kind of had, I got to, to know both of those places really well, as did she. And we kind of decided to describe what our life might look like. And we did a vivid vision describing what our life would look like in three years. And it just involved a serious amount of travel. So then we decided to purge everything. And between the two of us, we're in a five foot by 10 foot storage locker with some heirlooms that will pass on or something that's super important, some art that we'll, we'll take some somewhere at some point. And that's it. We have a backpack. Um, I own three pair of shoes and three pair of pants. And this is one of my three dress shirts. I'm probably going to get down to two because you never need them. And We just, we're on the go. So yeah, I think 35 countries in the last uh, five years, but we've done 14 countries since May and we're off to Israel tomorrow for a month and then France over New Year's and just going.
1: And people can follow your journey on YouTube, as I understand. Yeah.
0: Ashley has built out a really cool YouTube channel called Ever Wander, where she's just documenting all of our life and, and kind of every experience that we've had and just showing people the videos and where we're going, just mostly to inspire others as well. We were talking about it last night. We said, it's strange that north americans kind of stay where their parents had them you know where we were born like why is all of her family still within 20 miles of where they were born in chicago and i said you know four generations ago our great-grandparents packed up from somewhere in the world and came to north america like that was a big thing and i think this generation is going to start doing it now too that covid really accelerated the ability to work from anywhere and now we've got wi-fi and laptops And then the Airbnbs and then the reality, like stuff doesn't really make people happy. And I think we're realizing that, you know, we've been through a couple generations of acquiring stuff and the stuff isn't what makes us happy. I've always known for me, it's about free time and experiences. That's even why I became an entrepreneur was to have control of my time. So we're just exploring that more and more.
1: Yeah. And I think that's so liberating. And I think a lot of folks can resonate with the benefits that come with shifting to this kind of lifestyle. Is there anything about this? That has been destabilizing in a way? For sure. Um, We'll give you a couple examples of what's destabilizing. So having a
0: regular workout routine, like she did, my wife just texted me and she said, oh, by the way, if you want to get a workout in, it's probably now while we're at the hotel. So I'm like, oh shit, you're right. So I got to go down to a gym that I don't really know. I'm not sure what machines are there. I'm not sure what, you know, I don't have a trainer. When we get into a city for like two weeks in Jerusalem, I'll get a trainer for a couple of sessions, but then two weeks later, I'll have to go to Israel and find a new trainer. You got to find a new yoga studio. You have to find a new grocery store to go and grab groceries. You don't have a fridge full of stuff like condiments and things to make some of your food, right? So making dishes is a little harder. Finding a nice coffee shop that you like, you know? So things like routine are hard. And then also is just the, the, the friendships where you don't really have all the friendships with you on the road. So what we're trying to do is make sure that our friends know where we are so that they can kind of come to us if we're going to be in certain countries and meeting up with people. And then it's also, you know, as much as you love your spouse, is it really breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week? Is that how much we love it? You know, there's a, like do yoga workouts. So there's a bit of that. How do you find space and stay together and still have that kind of
1: component too? So do you feel like this is a good experiment for figuring out where you want to plant your next set of roots, let's say? Like, is this a bit of an experiment in figuring out where you want to land next? So if it's not Vancouver, if it's not Phoenix, where is it going to be?
0: Yeah. And what we're realizing is that we don't want to have one place. We want to have two or three places as our hubs and then kind of run as a hub and spoke. So we're going to buy one place either in Portugal or Spain. It's probably going to be Portugal, and that'll be kind of our Western European hub. And then we're going to have, it looks like Dubai is going to be our main hub, and we're going to buy a place in Dubai for a couple of reasons. I'm currently resident of Barbados, and my company is based in Barbados. There's a favorable tax treaty there as a Canadian. Dubai is even more favorable as a tax treaty. My Barbados taxes are 3.5% with zero personal, and in Dubai, it's zero and zero. So we're going to set up in Dubai legally. She's actually setting up now. And there's some tax ways for Americans to be able to do stuff in Dubai. And, and so there's some advantages there. And Dubai is an amazing
1: city, amazing hub, and it's 30% cheaper than North America. So let's talk about vivid vision for a moment, because, you know, you brought it up. You and your wife do this exercise where you map out this vivid vision as to how you'd like to live your life. You then decide to, to live this unique nomad lifestyle and who you are. Could you just highlight the principles of a vivid vision as it relates to, say, company, family, personal relationships, et cetera?
0: So the the concept of a vivid vision is something I was exposed to 25 years ago from an Olympic coach. and He was a high-performance sports psychologist who taught athletes to use visualization so that they could see themselves and feel themselves performing in the event at the highest level. And then when they were performing, it was almost like we could perform on instinct because they could see it so clearly. So a good example in in using visualization is someone building a home, right? The homeowner can visualize what they want the home to look like. They can describe the kitchen and the flow and the lighting and the rooms and the rough layout. And they can describe that vision to the contractor who can then understand the vision and create the blueprints or the plans to make the vision come true. And then the contractor can hand the vision and the blueprints to the employees who can literally build the home without ever speaking to the homeowner. In the business world, The Vivid Vision is a description of your company three years from now. So December 31st, 2025, you kind of lean out into the future and you describe every aspect of your business, almost as if you were walking around your physical company. You describe your marketing and your operations. You describe finance and IT. You describe your meeting rhythms and how you're using metrics and KPIs and dashboards. You describe what your customers are writing about you and what your employees are posting on Indeed and in Glassdoor, you literally describe the physical space, the hybrid, you know, the remote employees. You literally describe it as if it's come true without knowing how it happened. So the, the vivid Vision becomes a four or five page written description of your company three years in the future that your leadership team can figure out how to make it come true. In the personal world, it's exactly the same thing. If I lean out into the future three years from now, I can describe myself as a person. How am I like a dad? How am I as a husband? How am I as a friend? How am I as a lover? How am I as an acquaintance? How am I as a person in my community? How am I as a spiritual being? How am I exploring the world? How am I getting involved in sports? What activities am I involved in? What are my passions? What am I crossing off my bucket list? And I describe know maybe a three-page or a four-page description of me as all of that kind of a person without knowing how I'm going to do it. But the more people that I share that with, they'll help me make it come true. And then my wife and I recently did a vivid vision for us as a couple, where we described what we as a couple would look like in three years, how we would be present with each other, how we would explore sexuality together, how we would explore the world together, how we would live day to day, how we would stay healthy, um, how we would you know be confidants and grow each other and give each other support. And we described all of those things, and then we share it with our coaches, we share it with our friends, we share it online with people. And the more people that can see what my business and me and as a couple, we look like, they start figuring out how to make one sentence or two sentence come true. And I kind of have this whole world conspiring to help manifest it for me.
1: So this idea of leaning into the future, okay, and you've talked about it in a number of your talks related to this idea of sort of a guiding compass. As it relates to business owners and those that think that they're doing this by crafting, let's say, a vision statement or a mission statement, how does that differ from what you're describing and where are these business owners or entrepreneurs getting this wrong? So if I gave you a a mission statement, right, that one sentence
0: statement where I mashed up a few of my favorite words and it's supposed to align my whole team, that would be the same as me going to a home builder, a contractor and saying, build me the most amazing beautiful, inviting, three-story home. What the fuck does that look like? Like, is it a a craftsman style? Is it modern? Is it open? Is it, you know, set up? Is it lighting? Is it high ceilings? Is it exposed brick? Like, in which way is it facing? Like, there's not enough detail for the home builder to even build me a great home, regardless of how good they were, regardless of the budget. The one-sentence mission statement doesn't describe in enough detail for people to figure out how they can align with that, what projects to work on, how to pick which things to say yes to or no to. So the entrepreneur spends all of their time trying to align people and hold them accountable, kind of like herding paths, because nobody can see what you can see. But if everyone can see what you can see, like I have friends call me now constantly and they'll say, hey, I'm going to be in your city. Do you want to go play golf together? Because in my vivid vision, it says, I go golfing and hiking and hang out with friends on the beach. I don't go for drinks or dinner with people anymore, right? If I'm holding dinners, I hold dinners at my home and I bring 12 people together. Like, so they understand that I don't want to just go for coffee. What I'd rather do is go play golf with you, you know, or go for a hike with you. Does that make sense? So because I'm putting it
1: out there, that's why the vision statement doesn't work. So besides folks buying this book, if there are listeners that want to start today and start putting this into action, where do they start? What I would do if I were
0: them is I would grab a notebook, you know, just a simple notebook and a pen. And I would go somewhere where you're inspired, somewhere around nature, somewhere where you're out of your boardroom, you're out of your meeting room, you're out of your home office, no laptop, no phone, no iPad, literally just a book and a pen and start doing a mind map and describing all the different facets of your business or your life. Allow yourself just to daydream for a few hours and allow yourself to dream and think, and don't worry about how it comes true, right? If you remember the analogy of building the home, I don't know how they're going to install the wolf stove. I don't know how they're going to build the cabinets or hang the cabinets, but I know what I want the kitchen to look like, not how I'm going to make it come true. Don't worry about how you're going to
1: build your business. Just describe what it looks like. So you mentioned this idea of allowing oneself to dream. I watched your talk related to letters to my younger self and the biggest lessons every entrepreneur needs to learn, one of which was, as you mentioned, time to think, right? Allowing yourself to dream. Do you feel like we don't do enough of this as founders, as entrepreneurs in your experience? I mean, how do you put this into practice? Do you block off time in your calendar for quote unquote time to think? Yeah, I do a couple things. So I don't work Fridays anymore. So I blocked off Fridays as
0: days that I don't work. I never work weekends. So Saturdays and Sundays are sacrosanct. I don't work at all. And I stop working at 530 at night on weekdays because the reality is I'm never going to catch up. I'm never going to get my list done. So by working at night, I'm kind of lying to myself. I'm usually avoiding family or fitness or something and filling it with a dopamine rush or business. So by forcing myself to work within a container of time, it forces me to Have the free time to think, but it also forces me to start delegating stuff that I want to get done. Second thing that I try to do is I try to make it my to do list on a weekly basis of all the stuff that I want to get done. And then I put the number of hours or minutes beside each item as to how long it's going to take. I add up the total time and I try to delegate 80% of those hours to other people before I start working on anything. And the hardest part is to go, well, I don't have anybody that can do this. Well, then who can I train? Because my job is to grow people and get results through people. So what I try to do is delegate and coach, delegate and coach, delegate and coach, grow their skills, grow their confidence, grow their skills, grow their confidence. And the more that I can get off my plate, the more that it accelerates the growth of the business. That's how we grew junk, right? I took it from 14 employees to 3,100 employees in six years. It was by delegating fast and by learning how to grow people. Two to 106
1: million, I think. Yeah, 2 million to 106 million in six and a half years. Let's hit on some of these and drill deeper. So this idea of delegation, you have this framework that you've talked about related to putting everything out on a spreadsheet and sort of columnizing everything into tasks, classifying those tasks, and then assigning a dollar framework to each of these things. Um, Can you just talk a little bit more about that, that framework and how it works in practice? Sure. So I've invested over the years, hundreds of thousands of dollars
0: of being in mastermind groups, right? I've been in the Genius Network for seven years, strategic coach for seven years, baby bathwater over five times, mastermind talks five times. I've, I've really invested in myself and my growth. And in one of the systems that I was learning at strategic coach, they talked about this activity inventory, the idea of someone videoing you and documenting everything you do for the entire month and then rewinding the video and watching it and writing down everything you do. I reply to emails, I open emails, I book meetings, I book flights, I research travel, I coach people, I do speaking events, whatever. You end up with a huge, long, all-inclusive list of stuff. So what I do is I take a spreadsheet, I open up the spreadsheets, and I write down everything that I do in column A of the spreadsheet. I might end up with 82 things that I do over the course of a month. And then in column B, I categorize every activity in one of four ways. Either I for incompetent, meaning I suck at it. C for competent, meaning I'm okay at it. E for excellent, meaning I'm really, really good at it, but I don't necessarily love doing it. And then U for unique ability, which is the stuff that I love to do. I'm really good at. I get fired up when I'm doing it. People get energized watching me do it. I would even do it for free, except I have to pay bills. And then column C, if I was to hire someone just to do that task just to research flights or just to clean toilets or just to book speaking events or just to speak to audiences, right? What would the hourly rate be that I would pay someone to do just that task day in and day out all year? Because at the end of the day, you could delegate everything, right? That's how big companies get really, really big. And then what I try to do is delegate everything except genius, right? How do I get all the incompetent and competent off my plate? How do I get all of the lower paying tasks off my plate? so that I'm left with just the excellent and unique ability? And then how do I start hiring more senior
1: people to take the excellent stuff off my plate? So I'm left with just my unique ability. How do you describe your areas of excellence and or unique abilities? What they are for me, and and I can describe why I came up with them. Speaking events,
0: dealing with the media, like media interviews, networking, and planning. Those are the four that I'm really, really good at in terms of like, planning out the vivid vision, networking with people, figuring out the who's to help make some stuff happen, media interviews like this, um, and speaking events. The stuff that I'm you know, good at, but I don't love doing, I'm good at sales, I'm good at coaching, but I don't love doing it, right? The coaching is hard now because I've done it for 15 years, or even longer if I take into the fact that I'd coached 120 people back in the 90s. So it doesn't fire me up, right? So I'm now trying to get rid of even my coaching clients. I grabbed the notebook and I started journaling about stuff that I love, stuff that I hate, stuff that gives me energy, stuff that drains me of energy, stuff I'm really good at, stuff that I suck at. I kept making all these lists and the list got shorter and shorter and shorter as the stuff I was really, really good at and the stuff that I love to do and the stuff that was high enough in terms of pay
1: grade, right? Let me ask you about one other lesson that is somewhat related to the topic that we're talking about right now, but this idea of setting boundaries how important is it for entrepreneurs to set boundaries? And what do you mean by that? Are these boundaries that are purely business related? Are they personal? Are they both?
0: Both. Yeah, they're both. So years ago, I heard from really my first mentor, a guy named Greg Clark, who is the founder of College Pro Painters. Incidentally, he's the guy who told me about Masada over in Israel. and I'm taking my wife to go to Masada next week, and I'm super excited to show her this place. So Greg taught me one, one big thing he taught me over the years was that leaders have to say no more often than we say yes. And it's often very hard for leaders because we're trying to stay inclusive. We're trying to make our employees feel loved. And and what we need to say is, thank you for the idea. I'll take it into consideration. Maybe now I've chosen not to take that idea and here's why. But we don't have to say yes to every idea, every problem, every opportunity, every cool project, every business we could start or buy. It's about really staying focused on the critical few things versus the important many. The second one is the ability to have kind of that open door, but not always, right? It's kind of like I have an open door, but maybe it's open for an hour a day where you can come to me, I'll listen, I'll coach, I'll mentor. But there's also time in the day when I've got my door closed or, you know, I'm I'm not even in the office, but I'm focused on doing my work. So it's it's a balancing act with that. I've got clients all the time because of time zones and because of, you know, their needs and their lives will be like, Hey, can I just do my coaching call at seven o'clock on Tuesday night. I'm like, no, no, that's a horrible idea because for me, that doesn't fit within my boundaries. And then I teach them how to have a life. I teach them how to go connect with their kids and their family and they appreciate it. So it's a balance of, of being able to say no in lots of areas. Can you just talk a little
1: bit about your personal story, your backstory and how you sort of arrived at this perfect place of optimization? You've talked about the story of your collapse in an elevator. Is this where things started? What's the backstory here? Wow, you've really done your research. So the,
0: the backstory is I was groomed as an entrepreneur. My father and both sets of grandparents owned companies. So in growing up and watching them run companies and having them talk about running companies, there was one thing that was completely omnipresent to myself and my brother and sister. And that was that my grandparents and my dad had an inordinate amount of free time and they spent it with us and with their friends. They were always golfing. They were always hunting. They were always fishing. They were always going for hikes. They were always traveling and on vacations and at home for family dinner at 530 and playing with us on weekends. Like my dad used to show up at volleyball practice, not just the games, but he was at the, I'm like, dad, like most parents don't even come to, to the game and you're at practice. Like what the fuck? But what I learned was that by running his business, he wanted the free time. He didn't want to be a workaholic. So that was something that was really powerful for me. When I needed to learn it the most was I was building this internet company. We'd gone from about 60 people up to about 900 people. We were we had then gone public. We just sold the public company to another public company in January of 2000, right at the height, the height of the internet boom. But the transaction didn't close until April 15th. Well, March 15th was the start of the stock market crash when the NASDAQ went down by 78% over about six months. So our sixty-four million dollar valuation on the sale was worth three million by the time we were able to get out. I literally helped to take the company from nine hundred people down to about three hundred people, and I was buying my first house. My wife was pregnant. Uh, we had a mortgage. I was living part time in Seattle, part time in Vancouver. I was drinking every day. You know, I was working from seven in the morning till seven at night, going to start dinner with two Manhattan's, having a bottle of red wine, finishing dinner with a Grand Marnier, smoking at night, waking up in the morning doing it again. That was five days a week in Seattle, going home to Vancouver on the weekend, pretending everything was good. I was clinically redlining and didn't know it. So I had to learn that what was feeding me was the fact that I loved business, but I realized I wasn't in love with my first wife, right? I wasn't in love with myself. I wasn't, I I didn't have any hobbies or any activities. And then I repeated the pattern again with one 800 god junk So I needed to crash. I needed to hit that bottom And then I needed to think about what was important. So, you know, going through a divorce when my kids were 10 and eight and thinking about how do I become a a dad that my kids look up to? If someone asks my kids, what does your dad do? The last thing I want them to say is what I do for work. I want them to say he loves to travel and he loves hiking and he loves skiing and he likes to play golf and he hangs out with his wife and he likes cooking and wine. Oh yeah, and he does these things for work. But the only way I can, can have them
1: see that is to live that the work culture that we are currently exposed to in north america i think doesn't get this concept at all and the way that they prioritize things is completely backward it's almost like wealth first health second even if health is a priority it's way down on the list how do we move the needle on this I think the needle's moving. So uh, if
0: you look at Gen Y, kind of the, the second half of the cohort of Gen Y, which is really the 33-year-old down to about the 26-year-old, uh, about the last half of Gen Y and then the first half of Gen Z really care more about lifestyle and freedom. And, you know, we hear about this whole like quiet quitting. Years ago, we called it coasting. And people were in jobs and they were coasting. Well, they're not so much coasting now. What they What they're saying is, I don't believe in this 50 hour a week to buy stuff that I don't need to impress people I don't like, right? So they're pushing back against that. However, I think they're still stuck in that whole Instagram lifestyle of trying to impress versus you know being able to pull back from that and just saying, I actually just want to have a great life and, and work in some cool shit and have some good balance. But I think we're finding that the best companies out there are trying to understand how to attract and retain those people and we realize if we're just drive, 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 we're going to lose them. And I do think that cohort is pulling away from the need of ownership and you know the big homes. and the, But there's they are still definitely trapped in the fast cars and the nice watches.
1: Okay. So the second part of this question, which I didn't mention, which I will now, is this idea of slowing down and being less manic is sort of a derivative of what you're saying. But how does that get implemented in the workplace? And why is that concept so important for business owners to understand as they show up in front of their teams? For business owners, again, it's about working on the critical
0: few things versus the important many, right, is one. So they need to be a little bit less manic and a little bit more focused. I think we need to look at our employees. I was I was coaching someone yesterday. I said, what's most important with your needs about 100 employees is not that they work nine till five, five days a week. That's probably the least important thing. The most important thing with those hundred people is they're really happy. They feel really engaged. They feel really supported by you as a leader and by your leadership team. And that they're working on the critical few things. Help them get a bunch of stuff off their plate that isn't really that important. But I don't think leaders often show up that way. We don't show up trying to grow our people and grow their confidence and grow their skills and pull stuff off their plate that probably doesn't need to be done and just have them do and then say, like, get the fuck out of here. Go have a great weekend, right? Take the rest of the day off today. You worked really hard for four hours. I appreciate what you've done. Thank them for what they're doing. Thank them specifically for for living the core values. And I think if we work more on that, we're going to realize that it's about kind of that meritocracy, right? It's about getting the right people, as Jim Collins says, in the right seats. But then it's about getting them working on the right stuff. You're giving them the ability to get more shit done with less people faster. One of my big pet peeves with early managers, usually the managers that are managing for the first or second year of managing people, their solution to every problem is I need to hire more people. Right? If your people are coming to you saying we need to hire more people, you probably don't they probably don't know how to help people be more efficient. They're probably not coaching. They're probably not delegating well. They're probably not like observing Parkinson's law. They're probably not running effective meetings. So what happens is everybody's busy being busy, but they're not necessarily being productive. When you become a seasoned executive, you could probably fire 30%, like what Elon is doing at Twitter. He'll fire 70% of the team at Twitter and he'll still get more shit done with less people
1: and he'll scale the organization. Yeah, sorry, clarifying question and I'll ask you a follow up on Musk. What is Parkinson's law for those that don't know what that is? Parkinson's law states that
0: work expands to fill the space that we give it. So if I said to my kids, I need you to clean the house, it'll only take you an hour. Oh no, it'll take us all day. We'll have to scrub the floors and wash the counter. Or if I changed the question, I said, hey guys, I have friends coming in an hour. I need you to clean the home and do the best you can, but be done in 30 minutes. They'd be done in 29. If I said only spend 20 minutes cleaning the house, they'd be done in 19 minutes because I give them a smaller container. Very similar, the price of things expands to build the budget that we give it. So if I said to my assistant, Hey, Mayor, I've got four people that I want to have dinner with, four CEOs, it's going to be a working dinner. She could book dinner at High's or Morton's, and we'd have like all these wines decanted and a beautiful steak dinner. would be amazing. It'd probably cost two grand. Or I could say, Hey, Mayor, I have a working dinner at my home. Can you just bring in some healthy food and keep it under 120 bucks?
1: She could probably do dinner for 120 bucks for four people at my home. So neither of us are in the business of predictions, I don't think, but let's make a prediction as to what happens to Twitter in its next chapter. And I think you're probably better suited than most to make a prediction on this, I mean, you did work with his brother after all, way back when. What do you think Musk does here with Twitter? What What's his game plan? Do you think it's some sort of X.com derivative? What does he do with this platform?
0: Funny. Yeah. So Elon's very first domain was at the letter X.com. So I, Elon, I was a reference for Elon and Kimball Musk in their very first round of funding for Zip2 in January of 1995. Kimball Musk worked for me at College Pro Painters, as did his cousin, Peter Reeve, who went on to build Solar City. I hired them as franchisees and trained them. I think he'll pull it off. I think he's very stretched. I think he's, again, out on a bit of the lunatic fringe right now. And I texted Kimball about six years ago when he was on the first Joe Rogan interview. And I said, we need to pull him off the grid a little bit for a few weeks to get him to balance a bit. You could tell he was angsty. You could tell he was stressed. He wasn't sleeping. He was worried about the government. He was worried. about Like, I think he's a little bit there right now with Twitter. I don't think he's doing the wrong things. I just don't think he's managing the media perception of what he's doing in the right way. I think he is absolutely doing the right things. I think the pendulum swung way too far during COVID where employees were allowed to coast and not necessarily really be working and showing up. And I think we need to bring that back. I think for some companies, especially in the wartime kind of component, as Ben Horowitz and the hard thing about hard things talks about, there's a difference between a wartime situation and a priest time situation. In a wartime, you need to fucking hunker down and get shit done. And that doesn't necessarily happen with people working from home in their own hours. And I think the Twitter turnaround is a bit of a wartime situation. I think Elon will find the right people who are going to rally around him, who are going to believe in him, who are going to believe in each other's, and they'll probably get it done in a bewildering way over the next 12 months. Some of them won't like it, but those are the people that will probably leave. And that's okay. There's plenty of other companies for those people to go work for.
1: You've talked about these traits of entrepreneurs, and I'll just rhyme off some of them because I think a lot of folks will be somewhat surprised, maybe shocked with some of these. So traits, driven, restless, work on little sleep, easily irritated, act out sexually. So what's important for folks to know about these character traits as it relates to entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship in general? So what you actually read was a list of traits that, that is part of the 11 traits that describe bipolar
0: disorder. Um, so most most entrepreneurs are on the spectrum for bipolar. And I don't make light of bipolar. My, my oldest son, who is 21, is clinically diagnosed with bipolar. He's medication for lithium. He had a hypomanic episode and ended up in the psych ward. So I'm very aware of what bipolar is. I'm on the spectrum for bipolar disorder. I have 11 of the 11 traits of bipolar disorder. I'm not medicated, but I'm hyper aware of when my mania takes over and I'm hyper aware of the stress and depression when I can course correct and worry the mania in bipolar, right? The manic depression. So the mania is why people will invest in us. It's why they'll quit their jobs and work for us. It's how I recruited Kimball Musk was this crazy optimistic energy without really knowing how I was going to pull it all off. It's the recruiting the senior executive to come join me when I'm not really sure how I'm going to pay him in three weeks, but I'll figure it out because he'll help, help figure it out with me. That's the mania. The depression and stress of bipolar is when the entrepreneur's kind of don't take the time. We don't decompress. We don't have a healthy lifestyle. And we're working on that lunatic fringe, which is kind of where Elon Musk is right now. And you can't tell your board that you're scared. You can't tell your employees you're scared. You can't wake up in the morning and tell your team, oh, fuck, I'm worried how we're going to do all this stuff. So you live very kind of under this pressure. And entrepreneurs need to be in mastermind communities and with coaching components where they can turn to a trusted peer group And say, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, or I'm a little bit nervous, or I took a bit off more than I can chew, or I've mortgaged my home, or I haven't paid myself in six weeks. You know, we need that breathing space to allow the exhaust to come out versus to build up internally. The second part that I noticed with many entrepreneurs or most entrepreneurs is most are have attention deficit disorder. So I have 17 of the 18 signs of ADD, but I do not consider it a disorder. Now the medical community, and the science community and the, the teaching community think that ADV is a disorder because we're not like them and they want us to be like them. But you don't find a lot of engineers and, and medical you know, doctors and teachers who are that inspiring to, to get masses of people to follow them. ADV is a superpower. The fact that I understand what's happening with the economy and my suppliers and my customers, I can see the problems with the website. I notice the numbers jump off the page with, with you know, the metrics and dashboards. I'm hyper aware of everything. Well, that's not a disorder. That's almost a superpower. And because I'm so hyper aware of everything and I see all these things, I can't handle them all. I need to delegate them. That's a superpower. But if I want to try to control everything and only see the critical few things and stay very hyper focused, that's great to be a scientist, but it doesn't necessarily allow you to expand a business quickly. So the traits of entrepreneurship are around this bipolar and ADD. The skill set of entrepreneurs are things like selling and problem solving and finance and raising money and marketing. Those are skills that you can learn. I think people that want to be an entrepreneur have to have the DNA to be an entrepreneur and then learn the skills to be entrepreneurial. And I think there's a danger in society where entrepreneurship has become too cool and too many people want to be an entrepreneur without a clue as to what it actually means to be one.
1: I just had a quick look at the CDC website and looked at the ADHD slash ADD diagnosis data over the years. And all of these graphs are basically up and to the right, going back to 1997. That is for every single age group. So is it worrisome? Are you suggesting that perhaps this is going to be great for entrepreneurship and we will see a lot more entrepreneurs uh, as we move forward into the future? Well, I think, sadly, I think there's two parts there. One is that um, the medical community likes to diagnose a
0: lot of things to give us medication for stuff that we don't necessarily need. So, you know, the, the, the trend is up and to the right because it's very profitable to diagnose people and put them on medication. I think the reality is that about 3% of the population are true ADD at the, you know, I'm at 17 of the 18 signs, right? So they're diagnosing and medicating kids that are at nine of the 18. They don't need fucking help. They need more exercise. They need to get outside. They need to sleep better. When you're truly at that spectrum, at the the true side of it, you can either medicate us, but Ted Turner, Henry Ford, Richard Branson, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, two of the founders of Netscape, all clinically diagnosed as bipolar and ADD. If you'd medicated those people, you would have prevented them from ever building a company.
1: Let's shift to the concept of 5Fs. You know, you introduced me to the concept of the 5Fs as a way to measure and manage one's life. Almost a pseudo-type of scorecard. Can you just describe the idea here? What are the five F's and how do we think about them? Yeah.
0: So the five Fs, and I don't remember where I heard this. I heard it at an event somewhere, but it was friends, family, fitness, faith, and finance. And it was that if we think of our life, how would we describe ourselves in each of those areas? So what I then did is when I did my personal vivid vision, and I can send you a copy of mine and my my wife's one. Um, And you, maybe you want to share this, but I described what my life was like regarding vacations. I described what activities I did, my relationship with my kids, my relationship with my wife, my relationship with myself, my balance with business, how I feel day to day. Those are kind of some of the things or the containers around it. But they covered the fitness, right? How am I going to be healthy, a healthy mind and a healthy body? Faith, which is either, you know, spirituality or religious faith, whatever that might be, faith in myself, how do I keep my faith up in my own skill set or, you know, in my day to day, you have to work on that as well. My family, right? That's clear. It's my my family with my kids and my extended family. Finance is just my relationship with money. How do I feel around money? How can I, you know, decouple with the need to scale or or to invest and, you know, that kind of stuff. It's just those areas. I also believe that you can never be completely balanced on all things all of the time. I think it's like a teeter-totter or like a balance board. You know, you see people at the gym and they're standing on that board and they kind of weave back and forth a little bit. I think trying to build the perfect life, you have to remember that sometimes your family's going to come second and sometimes the business will come second and sometimes fitness will come second and sometimes spirituality will come second. So I kind of like bob and weave a little bit like a boat on the sea and I don't get too worried But I just remember, oh, I haven't spent much time with kids this month. I should really do that next month. I'll put my fitness on hold a little bit so I can spend more time with business. I kind of give myself a bit of a hall pass
1: instead of feeling like, oh, I'm a horrible human because I haven't, you know, worked out enough. Totally makes sense. Let's future pace for a moment heading into 2023. What are you hoping to accomplish, Cameron, next year? Well, on the business side, it's a real focus on scaling
0: the COO alliance. So we now have members from 17 countries. Um, So it's really, truly scaling up the CO Alliance. A lot of the marketing related to that. And then it's also scaling up the course, the Invest in Your Leaders course, mindfulness, practicing more yoga, practicing more uh, meditation. With my kids, it's making sure that I really, really, because now that I'm living global, it's finding time to spend with them. Last week, I was with both of them. Next month, they're flying over to France to go skiing. So it's really blocking time into the calendar where they're flying to me or I'm coming to see them and being very mindful with that. And then trying to find ways to incorporate our friends into our global lifestyle. So we're starting to publish our travel calendar 14, 15 months in advance to let people know, you know, here's the countries we're going to be in. If you want to say, hell yeah, I'll come and meet you in, you know, Dubai. Here's when we're going to be in Dubai. Or if you want to come see us in Bali, that kind of stuff. Those kinds of things, I guess. And the sixth book is coming out when? Comes out in January. I forgot about that. So the sixth book, probably my most important book ever, is called The Second in Command. And it's how to unleash the power of your COO. It's really teaching entrepreneurs, you know, the visionaries how to properly find the right integrator or how to find that right second in command to scale up your company. So it's how to find the right COO, how to interview them and hire them and onboard them, and then how to build that really strong relationship. So you have that really yin and yang partnership that Brian and I had building
1: 1-800-GOT-JUNK when I was his COO. You know, and I purposely didn't ask you a lot about 1-800-GOT-JUNK because folks can listen to Previous episodes, uh, you've been so kind with your time. Uh, you, you've now been on the show three times, and it's always so good to talk to you. I always appreciate your honesty, your candor. You shoot from the hip, as they say, and I think folks really, really appreciate that. CameronHerald.com for more info on what you're up to. Cameron, where else can people follow you? Uh, well, one thing I should check out is my second-in-command podcast. So we've got
0: like 240 amazing COOs that we interview. We never interview the entrepreneur. And then all six of my books would be on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes, and then the COO Alliance website
1: and investinyourleaders.com as well. Six books. I've only got one under the belt. I don't know how you do it. Good for you, man. Yeah, it's been hard. You're a great interviewer. I had fun with this. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Entrepreneurs Exposed is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at scriberbase.com. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. It helps our audience find us. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on.